radio phase of our worship service, we want to welcome our KKVV listening audience. Our speaker today is our very own, our beloved senior pastor, Dr. Calvin B. Rock. Yet again, he has another soul-stirring, powerful message to share with us. Before he comes, however, we will have our scripture reading by Naomi Cox, followed by another sacred selection by the Mass Choir. If you would like a copy of this program or any previous, you may contact us at 702-647-2627. Or if you'd like to watch the program, you may log on at www.abundantlifelv.org. Following the musical selection, you will hear our very own senior pastor, Dr. Calvin B. Rock. Hear ye him. Happy Sabbath. Thank you. The scripture will be coming from Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. By night I went through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mouth to get through. So I went up the, went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any other who would be doing work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Amen. Hello? No. Help her out there with that mic, will you?
Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, thank you for the word and music, for the reminder that the red blood of Jesus is all important, that through his blood we are saved and redeemed and given hope of everlasting life. And as we study now from the word, to learn more about his life and his will for us. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher and may we all be willing and obedient students. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to interrupt the usual series flow on something better that we have been doing to present a message especially geared, I believe, through prayer and study and observation, especially geared for abundant life and where we are today. And for those who are listening via radio, or if you find a tape, or if you're on the internet and happen to pick us up today, I think that this message, while specifically designed for this congregation in this month of July and this year of our Lord, 2008, will be of help and strength for you as well. So study along with us, please. And the topic that I've chosen, which is rooted in the words of the scripture read a little earlier, is just this, three words, arise and build. Does that give you some hint as to where we're going? Arise and build. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 13 to 18, tell the story of how Nehemiah, who was a captive Jew living in Persia where he was a cupbearer for King Artaxerxes, heard about what was going on back home in Jerusalem 
and was stirred up to do something about it. And as Naomi read, he left Shushan the palace, and that's in the earlier record of Nehemiah chapter 1, and had a, a leave of absence, let's call it. What happened was that Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer for the king, and a cupbearer is highly placed, was highly placed, I'm not sure that I would have chosen that job. A cupbearer is the one who had to taste the king's food and drink a little bit of the drink before he did to make sure nobody was trying to get him. But Nehemiah was a cupbearer. That was his job. And he had immediate access to the king. So here is this Hebrew slave taken from his home in Jerusalem in the court of the king of Persia, the nation that followed Babylon that destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Here he is with Artaxerxes. He's his cupbearer. And he has visitors one day, the Bible tells us. And when these visitors from Jerusalem came in, he asked them how things were going back home in Jerusalem. And they proceeded to tell him that things were desperate back in Jerusalem. That even though the temple had been rebuilt, the temple that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed, the walls that had been burned and torn down when the Babylonian armies came in and overwhelmed the city, the walls were still down and as a result, the enemies of God's people were continuously coming into Jerusalem, harassing them and robbing them and mugging them and, and giving them a hard time, whatever they got ready to do so. And the people were discouraged. They didn't have an army to fight back. They were defenseless. And they were feeling that even though the temple had been built, they were still in gross difficulty and overwhelmed by their enemies and the circumstances about them. And when Nebuchadnezzar heard this, he was not just disturbed, but when he heard this, he was inspired because in the words of his visitors, God's people were back in Jerusalem in great distress and reproach. And what happened next is one of the most inspiring stories in all the Bible. Nebuchadnezzar went to the king and he asked for a leave of absence. He obtained a letter from King Artaxerxes and all the visas and, and travel documents he needed so he could leave Shushan in Persia and travel through the tribes and territories to get back to Jerusalem and when he arrived at Jerusalem as was read in our scripture when he arrived at Jerusalem he arrived in the evening or at night and he quietly circled the city and inspected the walls and was eyewitness 
to the destruction that was still there as the walls lay in ruins. And the next thing he did was to gather the people together, the priests, the nobles, and the officials, and even the ordinary citizens, and he said to them as follows. Nehemiah 2 verses 17 and 18. Then I said to them, Nehemiah 2 17, you see the distress that we are now in, how Jerusalem lies in waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, now this is the voice of the people. This is not Nehemiah himself. Nehemiah leaves the palace, goes to Jerusalem, inspects the walls and its ruins, their ruins, and he says, look at what's happening to us, see what's going on, and look what the Bible says. So they said, this was not some vision coming from the top. This was a groundswell from among the people. So they said, let us arise and build. They said, what, everybody? And then the verse continues, they set their hands to do this good work. So the people, when they were given the situation, when Nebuchadnezzar articulated for them, summarized for them their feelings of despair and distress, and helplessness when he put it all out there in a word the Bible says the people said let us arise and build and the latter part of the verse 18 says then they set their hands to do this good work and it was effective turn over now to Nehemiah chapter 6 Nehemiah chapter 6 verses 15 and 16 the Bible reads, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in, the 50, in 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it and the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. How wonderful. How miraculous. How, how effective and glorious a witness to the name of God that for all these years, the walls were just devastated, laying there brick upon block and mortar upon sand and the people were moaning that we have the temple but we're not protected something ought to be done here comes Nehemiah who articulates and then they say of themselves let us build and in 52 days less than two months after he had articulated and the work was done 
the walls all around the city. And you have to understand that in Bible days, that's how they protected themselves. Every city had to have a wall so that you had guards on the wall looking for the enemies and you had archers shooting their bows and later on you had soldiers with pots of fire and, and liquid and oil who would pour down upon their enemies as they came to the gates of the walls. Walls were highly protective and important and without those walls the Jews were victims of any marauding tribe but now in 52 days when the people said let us arise and build the walls were completed the enemies of God's people were frustrated and the name of God was praised in the land today I would like to compare the situation with God's people then with our situation, abundant life, right now, right here in the city of Las Vegas. To put it in a word, we commandment keepers have a temple, but no walls. We have a lovely church fully paid for, praise God. We have a temple, but no walls. We have a beautiful glass pulpit from which to preach and teach, the lovely communion table with all the utensils we handled last Sabbath with our expert deaconesses and deacons doing their thing. We have some pageantry and beauty but no walls. We have three inspiring, lovely choirs, the mass choir, which is sung so well today, our youth choir, and our children's choir, praise God. But we have no walls. We have well-instructed and well-dressed ushers, and they do look good on Sabbath, don't they? but no walls. And most Sabbaths, we have a church full of worshiping people with extra chairs down the aisles, but no walls. And what are these walls to which I refer? They are the walls of Christian education that God has intended for the protection and the conservation of our children and young people. Christian education is a hedge, if you please. It is a wall that God instituted way back in the days of Elijah when he said that the children of the church should be educated with a biblical or a scriptural bias. And that his followers in every age should put this hedge or wall to protect their boys and girls and their young people. Now, we do have a school here in Las Vegas. 
And since we do not have one of our own, we should be supporting Las Vegas Junior Academy. Let me repeat. We should be utilizing the services of the school on Jones and Oakey, of which we are a constituent member. And we are doing that. Not well enough because only nine or ten of our children have been attending for the last several years where there should have been 30 or 40. But in spite of the fact that this school is available, there are problems. And I'm speaking very frankly with you today. One of the problems is that it goes to the eighth grade only. I'd like to see walls that go all the way to grade 12. We need walls until our young people have finished high school and then having kept them within the hedge as long as possible, know that they are well prepared to embark out either in higher education in our schools or if they must go to another, we have fortified them so that they are best prepared to take with them the principles that have been inculcated in our homes, in our church, and in our school. Another problem is that the school board of Las Vegas Junior Academy, and I don't know that I can call it a problem, maybe it's a blessing, but it's a fact, has suggested that all of the churches get their own schools. That there be a number of schools all around town, and, and, and that's a good thing, I'm sure, if it can be accomplished. And our conference president, who preached for us a few weeks ago on our special day of emphasis for education, reminded us that the conference, our leadership in Reno, one of whose representatives was here a few moments ago, that the conference itself is hoping that Abundant Life will get its own church school. They see our need for walls. And one of the reasons for all of this good advice is the matter of proximity or access and our need to have for various other cultural reasons as well a school of our own to sum it up for the sake of our flock our beautiful flock all these talented children that we see coming up every Sabbath and others that are a part of our extended family for them and for their future and for the welfare of the church years and years from now, if time should last, we need to put up a wall. As you know, we have been working on this wall. We thought that we might even do it right here in this facility, but we were told after some consideration by the fire department that we would have to put up sprinkler systems all through the church at the cost we estimated of maybe $75,000 or more. And even then, we weren't sure that aesthetically they would be what we would want. And we didn't have time to do that anyway. Had we had the money, before school would begin in late August. And so we focus on other property. And we ask several 
real estate, commercial real estate agents to look for us. And we found some ready-made schools. We found a school down on, off of uh, Pecos, way down off Sunset on the east side, which is like a turnkey job. But we think it's too far and that it would not be a better route for access than the school we already have. We need a wall that is closer, that will surround us where we live. And then we discovered a situation right here in the northwest part of town that was also very inviting. And we thought we had it made and we asked the church to pray and many of you prayed and many of you fasted and many of you were here on Monday night when our president came on the 14th last Monday and he met with us for an hour, hour and a half and we discussed this matter about this wall that we want. But we had to report that even though we had prayed and fasted, and thank you for doing that, at the very last moment, about two hours before the meeting, when I thought everything was in order, the zoning department of North Las Vegas said, right now this building that you are eyeing accommodates a school in this zone but it's being changed to another zone and in this new zone into which we are changing it the change hasn't even come yet but it's going to come in this new zoning you'll not be able to operate a school so we were disappointed and so the wall is still down that wall that we need for the protection of our children, where not nine or ten will attend, as is now the case with our school of which we are constituent, but where we can inspire 30, 40, 50, 60. And I have the record with me today of all of those parents who said that they would be interested in discussing. They didn't sign up. But they said they'd be interested in discussing and considering sending their children to this school. I have in my hand the names of 60 or more students whose parents said, yes, we will consider it. Even if half of them matriculated. What a wonderful increase and blessing it would be. But we believe it'll be better than that when we get our wall up. The wall that we need to protect our children from establishing friendships with those who do not know Jesus. A wall that protects them from prayerless classes and careless associations. A wall that protects them from teachers, and we know not all, but from those teachers in the public school system who smoke and drink and live careless lives and trample upon the law of God. A wall that protects our children in the words of those quotes that I've given to you the last few weeks from Ellen White. A wall that protects them from systems in which evolution is the basis of belief. Wall that will hedge them in where they will get a quality education based upon thus saith the Lord. We have the temple but we have no wall. And my challenge to you, abundant life today, in the words of the people who heard Nehemiah, let us arise and build. Let us arise and build.
And we can do it. We can do it just like they did in Nehemiah's time. Either right here, if we're going to retrofit this building to make it happen, or some other place, if we have to go and buy land and put a building on it, or buy land with a building that can be configured to meet our needs, where our students can have this protection, can have this education, and can be inspired by the principles of God's word, not the principles of the world, not the principles of secular society, where they can make friends, not just on Sabbath morning in Sabbath school and AY and the other organizations we have, but where they can make lifelong friends so when they get ready to marry, they will marry Christian believers. They will not be going out in high school with fellows and girls who don't respect them and abuse and misuse them, where they won't have so many temptations. And where 20, 25 years from now, if time should last, we will not have it said of us like it has been said of other generations that these children grew up in the church and left when they got big enough because they were lured by habits and addictions and people whose acquaintance resulted from their being in the wrong kind of company. Now some people say, well, Brother Pastor, oh, all right, but we don't have time for all that. Jesus is coming soon. You don't know when Jesus is coming. Now, we want him to come right now. Yes, Amen? We want him to come. We're trying to live for him to come. And we can't lie down at night without confessing our sins because he could come, he could come to our name in judgment. And even though he doesn't come in the clouds, he, a little trip in your brain could go wrong and a little vessel could burst and he's already come for you. Meanwhile, we have to live as every day as if it's the last day, and yet we have to plan for these young people as if the world's going to be here 40 years from now when you and I will be long gone. I know I'll be gone, and a lot of you will be too. Oh, yeah. You'll be gone. But these babies, these boys, and these girls who are growing up now, who will be in their 20s and 30s and 40s then, who will be in a position to operate God's work, they need a substantial God, biblical-driven education to prepare them to stand the test of life and to remain firm as members of God's remnant people. Now, it won't be easy, this challenge that I'm hurling out today. This business of arise and build, and I don't have all the details. I don't know exactly how we're going to do it or exactly where it's going to be. But I know this is God's will, and we'd better hurry up and do it before this crop gets away. And I also know 
that if we follow Nehemiah's formula, it will be a success. Now, what was Nehemiah's formula? Turn back to Nehemiah chapter 1, and let me give you a five-phase formula quickly of how Nehemiah did it. Chapter 1, verse 4. So it was when I heard these words, that's when these people from Jerusalem told Nehemiah how bad things were without the wall. So when I heard these words that I sat down and wept. He wept. And you know what? When you think about the fact that we have so, many, so few young men in our church, where do you think these young men are? So many young people leave the church. He says he sat down and wept and mourned for many days. Where are these young men? They're running track on the Sabbath. Huh? I know. They're playing football on the Sabbath. And those that are left are fighting their coaches who want them to play basketball on Friday night. When you come from a good Adventist home where you eat right, you can jump higher than anybody. You can run as fast as anybody. These are good athletes we have among the young men in this church. Beautiful young women. Nehemiah says, I wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying. Secret number one of Nehemiah's triumph is that he was fasting and praying. And before we launch out in any attempt to build, to buy, or whatever is going to happen, we need to be a praying people. I tell you, more things, Ellen White has reminded us, are wrought by prayer than this world ever dreams of. And as I have reminded myself and want to remind you again, no prayer, no. Little prayer, little. Much prayer, much. Folk, it begins with prayer and fasting, not just praying, but fasting. The second thing, that's, that's number one of his formula. Number two, Nehemiah 2, verse 6 and 7. Look at what the Bible says. So the king said to me, how long will your journey be? This is when he was trying to get his extended leave, his leave of absence. And when it had all come together, verses 12 and 13, then I rose in the night and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And then... In verse 13, I went up by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates were burned with fire. The second thing Nehemiah did after he prayed was to examine the situation. He, he, he assessed the need. He didn't just run out and say, let's build the walls. But he looked around and he got his bearings and he counted the cost. Number three, turn to chapter four. And let me read just a few verses as to his third act of the formula, the third part of the formula. Nehemiah 4 verse 13. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall 
at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with swords, their swords, their spears, and their bows. And verse 16, so it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and wore armor, and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. In other words, Nehemiah prayed, he counted the cost, and then he organized the people. God is a God of order. He blesses order. He blesses us when we, when we are sensitive to time and when, when, when we arrange and when we categorize and when we, having assessed, organize ourselves appropriately. So those are the first three things he did. He fasted and he prayed, confessed his sins and had the people to confess. Then he assessed the situation, then he organized, and then look at what he did next. Back to chapter 3, verse 1. Nehemiah 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priest, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors, speaking of just one of the gates on the wall. They built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it then as far as the Tower of Hananiel. And chapter 4, verse 16 continues, So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held spears and shields and so forth. And verse 6 of the same chapter, one that I just love because it says it, in, in, in non-forgettable language. So we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to the half of its height for the people had a mind to work. Can you say that together? For the people Now that, that's, that's, that's like you're saying, well, pastor, what's coming next? But if you really believe God is able, and if you are willing to risk and trust, and if you want to make this wall your priority for the house of God, would you say it with me like you mean it together? For the people had a mind to work. Now, what does working mean for us? Let me show you on the slide now. I want to turn to the screen and give you a visual of what we're talking about. The people had a mind to work. Back there, what it meant was bricks and mortar as they built this wall around Jerusalem. And I'm not talking about us laying blocks and, and, and putting up beams. Maybe there are some carpenters and builders who will help with that before it's over. But I'm talking about our financial contribution to make this happen. The sacrifice we have to make. And I know we have the money. I know we have the money. You know how I know we have the money? Because we've been keeping up with the tithe of this church. Look at where the tithe was in the year 2002. In the year 2002, we had almost $200,000. That was my first year of acquaintance with Abundant Life as pastor. Half of that year, July 2002. All right. That year, we were almost 200000 2003, look at what happened. 
God blesses his people, and in 2003, we have over $300,000. Isn't that wonderful? That means God has given somebody some jobs. Huh? All right. Then in 2004, it kept going, and we have $380-some thousand dollars, almost $400,000. Is God good? All the time. And you see it. 2005, the Lord said, I'm going to bless Abundant Life some more. I'm going to give them some more money. And you know, we don't put this in the bulletin every Sabbath because I don't want anybody getting any ideas of what we're collecting around here. You know, we've got some funny people in, in the world. So we just bring this out once in a while. But the year 2005, over $400,000. And God's just to be sure, just to be sure, God said, I'm going to bless them some more. And in 2006, we almost hit the five, you know what $500,000 is? That's what? I knew you would say that. Everybody thinks about millions. Half a million, that's right. And just to be sure, to illustrate the point that God is blessing us, that we can do it, that we have the money, not, not, not equal giving, because we can't give equally, but equal sacrifice. So that if you got the widow's might, you do your best. And if you're making $100,000 a year, you do your best. Equal sacrifice. In 2007, we sent to the conference in Reno over 500,000, in fact, 530 approximately thousand dollars, over half a million dollars. I say, brothers and sisters, God is blessing us. Let's arise and build. Let's pray. Let's organize. And let's be ready to do this thing. Let's put this wall up. Now look at the next slide. And then we'll bring this to a conclusion. Here. You just saw the tithe thing. Now look at the church expense, what we call stewardship. And this is January through June this year. The green column represents offerings that we have received. A hundred and $39,000. And over in the left hand, the right hand, we see the shorter column, which is the expenses. And if you note the difference between the expenses and the offerings, we have received approximately $6,000 more in offerings than we have paid out in bills. Now, somebody said the church is broke. We don't have any money. We can't do it. No, we're not broke. It's marginal. Yeah, it's marginal. But the reason it's marginal is not because we don't have the money. Go back to that other slide, please, sir. Thank you, Brother Brown. It's not because we don't have the money. The reason we're marginal, can we get back to that tithe slide we just had? The reason we are marginal is that we have committed to stewardship, but we haven't kept up with our commitments. Now, in this hand, I hold your name and your commitment. 2%, 5%, 10%, 15%. Some of us are doing 15%. I have the commitments, 
Over here is I have what had been done. And I tell you, there's a big difference between and if we ever have the to match the we're going to go way over the top. Thank you. That's enough of our slide. What I'm trying to say, dear ones, is that God is able, God is blessing us, and by his grace, we can make it happen. All right. So, if New York can have a, a hedge and a wall, if Cleveland can have it, if Columbus, Ohio, I'm talking about our churches, talking about our churches. When I say our, you, you, you know what I mean? If they can have it. If Los Angeles can have it. Huh? If Atlanta can have it. Huh? If Miami can do it and all these other cities, we must do it and we can do it and God will bless us if we follow his will. And there's one more, par one more parallel with Nehemiah. And I have to say this because it's going to happen. Look now in Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no more breaks in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors in the gates, that Sanballat and Gresham, Geshem sent to me saying, come, let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. Now, every step that Nehemiah and the people made, there were enemies who tried to stop them. There were enemies who tried to discourage them. I don't have time to detail them, but you, if you're writing, remember, in, in chapter 2, 19 and 20 is when we first see, when we first see Sanballat and his friends. And look at what they are saying. Chapter 2, verse 19. But when Sanballat, the Hornite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despise, saying, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? And then in chapter 4, verse 7. Now when it happened, Sanballat and the others go on to say, verse 8, all of them conspired together to attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Now chapter 6, verse 1 to 3 we just read, but look at chapter 6, verse 5 and on. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me the fifth time with an open letter. And this was trying again to discourage them. But I like what Nehemiah says in verse 3 of chapter 6. So I sent messengers to them. These people who were enemies, tribes that saw that the wall was around and it could no longer have access to Jerusalem, Sanballat and his friends started all their trouble. But it wasn't only Sanballat from the outside. There were people on the inside, Jews themselves, who said, we can't do it. We can't do it. Look at them trying to put up these walls and, and, and it's not going to work. But look at what verse 3 says. So I sent messages to them saying, I am doing a great work. One time Sanballat said, come on down, let's talk. He found out that he couldn't discourage him by shouting at him and his people. So he said, come down, let's talk. And Nehemiah knew it was a trap. So this is what he said. 
He said, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? If we are going to rise and build, brothers and sisters, we cannot stop to chase the devil's rabbits. You can spend all your time trying to track down rumors and listening to what people say. You'll be discouraged. You'll never do anything. Nehemiah said, I'm not going to go down there and get involved in all that trash and foolishness. Let Sanballat and the rest of them say what they want. I am doing a good work and I cannot come down. And because he handled it the way he did, he was able to say, and this is my last scripture, Nehemiah 4, verses 19 and 20. Then I said to the nobles and the rulers and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Therefore, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Amen. Now, who is Nehemiah? Ellen White says, Nehemiah is not the preacher or the pastors. Nehemiah is every member of the church who feels the burden to put up the wall. We're all Nehemiahs. Who is Sanballat? Sanballat is the enemy who would try to discourage and say it can't be done. We don't need it. Forget about it. Too much money. Anybody tell you that? You tell them, leave me alone, Sanballat. And who is God? He's the same God, the same Jehovah. He is El Shaddai. He is the same El Elyon. He is the same God of Nehemiah and the people who built the wall to protect the city. And he will help us to get this wall up, I promise you. Upon the authority of the word of God, I promise you he's going to do it. I promise you not because of just what Nehemiah did. I promise you because the Bible says in Romans 8, 31, if God be for us, no man can be against us. There's no mountain too high. There's no chasm too wide. There's no sea too deep that God can't conquer. And if it's his will, bring it to pass. 6,000 years ago, God put his children in the Garden of Eden and he surrounded Adam and Eve with the wall of righteousness. Satan came and he broke down that wall. He took away the glow that covered their nakedness and he exposed the human race to sin and its consequences. And Jesus, the great Nehemiah of glory, saw our plight. And he left the comforts of the Father's throne where he was adored by angels, where he was surrounded with effulgence of glory and, and all the beauty and pageantry and power of heaven. But he left the courts and he came down here to this wicked world. And he came quietly. He didn't make a lot of noise. He came by night in Bethlehem. And they didn't recognize that the baby who cried in the crib was the being who spake and it was done. They didn't realize that the boy who played in the mud was the being who created the earth. 
They didn't understand that the man who taught in the field was the monarch who made the harvest, or the prisoner who cried, I thirst, was the potentate who spread out the oceans. He assumed his place as man among men. He had all of our equipment, and Satan tried to discourage him. He tried to destroy him when he was born and killed all the other boy babies. He tried to deceive him in the wilderness. He tried to demoralize him in, in Gethsemane. He tried to defame him before Pilate and deflate him on the cross where he stretched out in his final act of rebuilding the wall of righteousness, of putting up the wall of hope, of protecting the human race from sure and eternal death. He tried to detain him in the cross, in the grave where he couldn't come out. He tried to hold him there, and he sent his emissaries, his angelic sand ballots on the corners of the earth and said, don't let the father raise him up. I got him. He came here to build up the wall of salvation, but I've got him in the grave, and I'm going to keep him there. And if I can keep him there, this wall won't mean a thing. He will have failed. He tried to hold him in the grave, but as the song says, he could not. He rose, and when he rose, he went back to glory to be with his father. And there he intercedes for us now, and he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. You are my people. I will protect you. The same God that put a wall of fire around Elisha will put a wall of salvation around his people. And I believe with all my heart he'll build a wall of education for our boys and our girls in a very practical sense. And the question becomes, who will help build the wall? Who will make God's program a chief priority? Even if it means you can't buy a new car or a new TV or a new house or whatever. Even if it means you have to sacrifice a suit or whatever. Who will rally to the cause and respond to the appeal? And I'd like to begin with the leadership of this church today, with my elders. Are you tuned into the program, brethren, sisters? If so, may I see just the elders? Would you stand and by standing say, yes, I'm ready to help build. I don't know what the goals are. We're going to have a church rally day, the first Sabbath of November. That's the next Plunkett Down. And on that day, the money we bring in is going to go toward the wall. Going to go toward the wall. And we'll have it defined by then so you know more as to where we're headed. Whether we tear down the fellowship hall and put a school there or go buy land, I don't know. But whatever happens... You're saying elders by standing. Pastor, I'm with it. The Bible says the priest led the way. And what about my church board members? And it's okay if you don't stand. I don't hold it against you. If you don't believe in it, sit down and pray. It's all right. 
But if you're a board member and you really want to make this venture your obsession and your priority, would you stand where you are? If you're a church board member, you may stand. And if you don't believe it, it's all right. Pray for you, you pray for us. And what about the rest of the membership? Maybe you're not an officer, an elder, or a board member.